Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings and welcome to the art podcast for the New Books Network podcast. My name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Gila Hirsch about the book Archaeology of Metaphor, the Art of Gila Yalen Hirsch, which is edited by Donna Stein and is hot off the press, published by Skira Publishers 2022. Gila is a Canadian-American artist, interdisciplinarian, and you will learn of her many roles during this interview. Gila, I want to thank you for being with us today, and I would like to ask you to start us off by speaking about the impetus for the book. Well, Kirsten, first of all, thank you very much for having me and your interest in the book and in my life and work, and I will do what I can to help fill in some gaps. Uh, the impetus came when I was invited by OCA, Orange County Center for Contemporary Art in Santa Ana, to have a retrospective exhibition of my work. I was very honored by this invitation, and I happened to meet Donna Stein um, within a week of that invitation, and I told her about it, and she then proposed that she would be the curator of the exhibition, which for me was an incredible honor, for Donna is a world-renowned curator, author, um, art historian, um, a, a main person in the art world for very many years. And I was thrilled that she uh, volunteered to curate the show. So we began our discussion. The first thing was, what, what would the title be? And I came up with Archaeology of Metaphor because I feel that my work has always been digging deeper into the psychology of my psyche and my experience. And images evolving that show that archaeological dig. So that's where the title came from. And Donna suggested that we do a Q&A interview um, for a catalog for the exhibition. Little did we know that this interview would take a few years and that it would become a book far wider than we ever imagined and the retrospective itself is far wider and far deeper than before. And Donna then, after we had the initial phases of the interview, which got deeper and deeper, suggested that she presented to Skira, the foremost art publisher for the last century, which is in Milan, 
And um, they not only uh, were thrilled with the whole concept, but were really interested in the depth and breadth of the interview at that point and suggested that this should be far larger than a, a catalog, but it should also include beyond the interview, which would be 100 pages, two more essays um, by two individuals who are really in different fields and who are looking at my work and life from their lenses. And so therefore, Lawrence Kermeyer, a renowned psychiatrist who works in uh, from Montreal, um, the, came on to discuss my work from his lens, and a Carolyn Stewart, an art historian who is here in Los Angeles, looked at my work from another point of view altogether and looking for a way to include my work in, a, in an art history where she was finding artists who worked as scientists in the past. And one of the things that's unique in my life and work is that I'm also a scientist, not by training, but by interest and research. So I think that gives you a sense of um, the way that this book came into uh, into fruition. And uh, it was more than two years, almost three years, from the invitation, original invitation, a little more than three years, to finally the book coming out in October. You mentioned that you are not a scientist by training, and I'm... I know that listeners would like to hear, especially those interested in the relationships between art and science, more about this um, background in science and then your artistic life. Okay, well, uh, contrary to most artists' lives, I had no art in my childhood. I never thought I would ever be anywhere in the world of art. I, my intention was to become a psychologist and a writer. And from early on in my childhood, I was writing essays that were being published <clears throat> excuse me, in, in newspapers in, in Montreal. And I was writing letters um, questioning the status quo of the world and of family and of life to, to <clears throat> people, I thought, who had answers. One of those letters was sent to Albert Einstein when I was 10 years old. And I asked him, who I knew was the greatest scientist in the world, how could he believe in what I read, the God of the Old Testament? And I sent this letter off to Princeton, and uh, I, my mother said, oh, no, you know, don't expect anything. He is the greatest scientist in the world. He has no time. And within a week, I received an answer. And the answer said, uh, dear Gila, um, thank you for your letter and uh, another line or two. And then came the important line, which was always form your opinions according to your own judgment. You have shown in your letter that you are able to do so. And that line became the guide of my life. He signed the letter, your friend, Albert Einstein, and he died two weeks after that. And that letter really has been the guide of my life. And so anything that I've been interested in, I, I really literally went to the ends of the earth to meet the people I needed to meet, to live in the cultures I had to explore. And when it comes to science, <clears throat> I didn't think of myself as a scientist. I was thinking more as someone who I have to find answers. And whatever it took, that's where I went. 
So in relation to my later life, where I actually became um, by default a scientist and was invited to present my scientific work work at science conferences, um, much to my own surprise, um, I then understood that it isn't a question of the training. It is a question of the desire to learn. And anyone can learn in any field as long as their interest is high and that they can sustain that interest to follow the unknown wherever it's going to lead you. So going, um, I didn't really become an artist, a painter until my late 20s, and that was an accident. I was uh, at university in Berkeley interested in medieval history, psychology, and philosophy. And because I uh, was taking an art history class, I was asked to take a painting class. And never having been a painter before, I painted 10 paintings, which immediately received tremendous amount of attention. And people were calling me an artist, uh, much to my great surprise. Now, my intention had been to take advantage of the four-year PhD scholarships offered to me by Stanford University in clinical psychology. But because my then-husband had decided to go to UCLA, where there was the only professor in the world doing the first course on computer-assisted instruction, um, we decided to go there. And I, on a lark, applied for the MFA program at UCLA. And most extraordinarily, I was accepted. So I never had any uh, training as an artist. I never had training as a scientist. And there I was as a graduate student in the MFA program producing paintings, which immediately became renowned throughout the U.S. And I was showing in museums in New York and Los Angeles and other places within a year. So by accident, I became an artist. By accident, I became a scientist. And pretty much all the other hats that I wear, which are many, were were earned by my interest and and finding where I could discover the the information that I needed. But then the the key aspect of being a scientist or being a person of knowledge is to link that which is deemed to be unrelated. And that's where the big ideas come from in the history of the world. And that was something that uh, was native to me from the start. I was looking at seemingly unrelated ideas, cultures, literature, uh, science work, and seeing where the commonalities are. And that's really been the hallmark um, of how I've come to wear so many hats in so many fields internationally. I hope I can weave my next question effectively in effectively here because it's about subject matter. And I know um, in the book you explain that meaning has always been your primary subject matter. And I'm wondering, for example, if you would tell us a little bit about the meaning of the early paintings, I'm not going to say subject matter, I'm going to say meaning, um, that you pursued when you started your painting life. Okay, well, I start because I I wasn't trained as an artist, I really didn't even know how to draw. 
And uh, my first set of paintings, my first year in, in graduate school at UCLA was what I came to call windows. And they were abstract paintings of layering planes of light and color over each other and being able to see through them. And the meaning at that point for me was that we may have ideas in our minds, but there are many more ideas that are available to us if we give uh, space and time to give credence to these ideas. So the meaning of the window paintings has to do with understanding that there's far too any one vision at any time, and that it is up to us to look through the layers and find them. Now, the second set of paintings I did as a graduate student all had domestic food as their subject matter. And um, at first, I, I was sort of in awe of the fact that I realized I, I could paint something that looked really real. I didn't have to be only working in abstraction. And I painted extremely real-looking food elements that I was using every day in the kitchen. And then I began to think, well, it's not still life that I'm looking at, because every time I see any two objects in relation to each other, there is a relationship developing. Each is, in one way or another, affecting the other. And so I began to use the food imagery in different ways as well, changing scale and context, and at times imagining that I was seeing through different layers of glass in the same painting, and that would distort the image in one way or another. And so they became more poetic, let's say, um, and really, again, looking at the, um, the the layering of ideas that I could come, I could find through the layers of the imagery. And after that, I began to look into internally and look into the images in my mind in terms of where is DNA? What does the body look like interiorly um, through a subjective vision that is overlaid anatomical vision? Now, around that same time, I became in involved in the early feminist movement, and it was in 72 then I became one of the founders of the first organization of women artists called LA Council of Women Artists, LACWA. And we protested the county museum and I was on TV and radio a lot. And I wrote all the manifestos. I wrote all of the written literary work attached to the organization. Now, it, it wasn't until I became interested in feminism that I understood that the earlier paintings, particularly the food paintings, were feminist in nature, that I had been using domestic food in a way that nobody else had ever done in order to look into the concepts of what it means to be a woman, a woman who is, had been married, was married at the time, still married, and a woman who had other roles to play in the world. So the meaning there becomes more sociological as we move through the food paintings and then into the round series where I begin to look interiorly into the mind and body, looking where, what is DNA, where is it? How does uh, DNA affect our behavior? How does culture affect our DNA and our behavior? And that's when things got even more psychological. 
So we're moving through quite a number of years, and then the big change came when I became a, a visiting artist at Dorland Mountain Colony, an artist colony in Southern California, and I began to spend long periods in wilderness, wilderness alone, ultimately as much as a year and a half in the high mountains of northern Arizona. And it was there that I became very, very involved in, in nature, and it was there that I began to find the five forms that I eventually called alphabetic morphology and that I found to be intrinsic to all alphabets ancient to modern. And then I formed my first, what came to be known as my first scientific theory. As I walked around the world looking at alphabets and photographing them universally, I saw that there were five forms that were intrinsic to all alphabets ancient to modern. And then I wondered, why? Why these five forms? And one day it hit me that these five forms mirror the shapes and neural processes of perception and cognition, that there is an oscillating relation between the perceiver and the perceived. And that also told me that as wonderfully cultures give richness and tapestry to our lives, essentially we are the same humans from culture to culture, and therefore in every culture, in every country, in every alphabet, those five forms are the basic elements. Now the five forms are the line, the angle, the meander, uh, uh, the arc, and the X. All of that can be played out on your five fingers. And with that, theory came to be known as a theory and i was first asked to present it to a scientific conference in 1981 imagine my my worry here i am you know barely an artist and here i'm to present this new theory to a hundred scientists world-renowned scientists and i was really scared to death about this but i presented it and and it was accepted was accepted widely and it continues to be accepted widely and from that early idea I developed other theories that sit on top what I call the power of form and this moved into healing into medicine into visualization as a powerful form not only of self-healing but I teach and train doctors psychiatrists and hospitals and patients all over the world how to use visualization, meticulous visualization for their own healing. Now, I think I'm, I'm blustering a bit, Kirsten. Where would you like mm. me to go? <laughs> I'm just, I'm fascinated. And I, I know listeners are going to be as well. I, I am thinking about the essay that Lawrence uh, Kiermeyer contributes to the volume. And he, he, among other things, discuss, discusses what you're just were speaking about healing and an aesthetics of healing. I think that's the term that he uses. And now I'd like to ask you, do you feel that the, for viewers of your paintings, for example, there is a way to access um, healing through that viewing process? Absolutely. And this has been very gratifying to me as my paintings are shown all over the world. And no matter which culture 
um, which country, people react in the very same way. And um, I had a very, very serious, uh, really a lethal accident in 1999 in a remote uh, archipelago in the Pacific uh, uh, Ocean, about 200 miles west of Vancouver. Uh, it was called the Sh- Queen Charlotte Islands, home of the uh, Kwakutl Indians, Native, Native Canadians. And uh, the car that I had rented to take over there, the steering wheel seized up and the car rolled uh, over and over again down a deep ravine and left me hanging upside down in this crushed up car. I was uh, obviously found dead and then revived and uh, very, very seriously hurt. Um, I will just, um, I, I managed to to get back to Los Angeles on morphine to go. And it uh, turned out that I had broken uh, all my ribs, my sternum, my scapula on both sides, various vertebrae, crushed head, crushed heart, crushed knees, um, many millimeters of bone fragments in my spinal column. And I had EKG of a dead person and I was given a uh, horrible prognosis uh, that I would be paralyzed from the waist down, that I would become stupid, that I would lose my mind. Um, anyway, none of that happened because instead of having surgery, I determined I would go home and I had medical textbooks around me. And my full-time job was to visualize the perfect situation of each cell, system, and organ in my body. This was my full-time job. Looking at the text, I could not move, by the way. I was lying prone, and I was looking at each um, cell, system, and organ, <clears throat> excuse me, and envisioning it in its perfect state. And within seven uh, weeks, uh, I was flying to this science conference and talking about my own healing. At the same time, I had seven large diamond-shaped canvases prepared in my studio. And starting in the second month, I began to paint the reconstruction of my body from the inside out. In the beginning, I could barely hold a brush. But as I worked harder and harder at reconstructing every cell system and organ, I gained strength, entire strength, and I was fully capacious, as I am now without any having any kind of uh, lingering manifestation of that horrible accident. Those paintings have traveled around the world. Uh, There was an exhibition of 30 paintings that moved through seven countries um, over a period of 12 years. And everywhere they were, people found the same kind of healing aspect of the work in their own bodies. And this was very, very gratifying to me, and it continues that way. What I have understood is that whatever I see and create on a canvas in front of me is changing my body as I am doing it. It's, again, reciprocal relation between the perceiver and the perceived. And I have control over what I allow to be seen on the canvases. My choice is always that these be beneficial, not only to me, but to the viewer. 
I have a hard time with negative images that are being pushed into the world simply because they're negative. I think that every artist has a responsibility as to what kind of image they want to propel into the universe, because everything that we see changes us. And that brings me to the power of form. The, the power of form, the way I understand it, is that every color has a frequency equivalent, by the way, to the frequency of a sound. And in fact, when I was in the North Pole, literally at the North Pole, uh, where I was to, to research the uh, language of the Eskimos, Inuktitut, I found myself lying on the tundra in the night, and it was very cold and very dark. And in front of me and all around, you could see almost the edges of the round planet. You could see the aurora borealis, very many layers, very many colors, undulating almost in a, in a sexual way through each other. And when each color touched the turf, the uh, tundra, a different sound was emitted, the equivalent of the frequency of the color. And there I was, surrounded by a cosmic symphony and a cosmic light show. So fully understanding the relation between frequency of color and form and sound, I was all the more attentive to the shapes that I was producing in the paintings, because there the color, and I use layers and layers and layers of color, the color has certain frequency and it is attenuated into the form that I give it. And every form has an affect on the viewer in addition to the artist. So in this way, yes, the paintings are healing paintings. And I also help others create imagery that will help them themselves. And this is part of using form as a, a healing manner. With regard to form, how do you see the relationship of nature, which is an important part, I believe, of your work and maybe the Uber, an Uber concept here? How do you see, um, I guess, how do you, how would you discuss the role of nature in your work? Well, let's go back to when I was one year old. There was a birthday party made for this baby. And I remember vividly that everybody was sitting on a blanket. This is in the Laurentian Mountains outside of Montreal, where I was born and spent my first, spent my first 16 years. The family sitting outside on the grass, and I'm sitting on the blanket. And everybody came down with poison ivy except me. So I remember that as um, my first nature experience. After that, uh, I was um, sent to a summer camp, and um, which, by the way, was a Hebrew-speaking summer camp. And um, I loved being away from the group and would go every day to this little secret lake called Jade Lake, and I'd take all my heavy-duty books, which were philosophy and psychiatry and literature, um, into the forest with me. And this was my refuge. So nature was my refuge from early on. 
I was not uh, welcomed back to my bunk by my peer girls who were, had very different interests than I did. In fact, uh, they were rather cruel that I would come back and they would have spread the, the garbage of the bunk over my white Hudson Bay blankets. Uh, they were not happy about this individual thinker. But anyway, that was my, my entry into deep nature. And throughout my life, I began spending longer and longer periods alone in nature, starting out at Dorland Mountain Colony with three months at a time, and then in northern uh, Arizona, 16 months at a time. And it was in these solitary sojourns in nature that I began to recognize the, the particular patterns in nature where I found that I was reading these five forms in the various alphabets that I do read. And that was where the impetus to researching the relation between these five forms and world alphabets began. I am most at home in wilderness, and I continue to be most at home in wilderness, although it becomes harder and harder to leave my very busy life and take time for that kind of privilege. What What would you say to a, a new artist, a student of art, uh, starting out right now? What would you advise them? Don't let anyone tell you what to do or how to see or how to think. Whatever it is that is original to you is what you really want to follow and, um, and, and produce in whatever way you want. It may be that you think of yourself as a painter, but you may think, begin to think of yourself as a writer or an anthropologist or who knows what. Um, as long as you follow that which interests you and that you become excited about what you discover, in my way and in my life, I have followed the unknown, and it is that way that I have learned to know and to know that I should keep following the unknown, as it is the only way that I will ever, ever learn something. Unfortunately, most of our um, academic teaching is relearning that which was known. And in many ways, it, I know it turns people off. It certainly turned me off. Um, and if you remember that you are born with a very special and unique psyche, a unique mind, and it is up to you to allow that mind to play in the world and follow where the play leads you, that's what I would suggest. I can't think of anything more encouraging um really for a new a person coming into an artistic identity or art identities and with that said i'm wondering what your next project is what's your newest um work well besides uh new paintings because new paintings are always reflecting what i'm thinking my life experience at the time and because I'm continually fascinated by the fact that uh, after nine or so months of working on a canvas, a new entity is born who I've never seen before, and that's what keeps me going. But in terms of other things, um, a couple of years ago, I was asked to help form a new institute uh, for the medical school, the University of Colorado, and 
Denver on um, traditional indigenous medicine. There's a sound that's conflicting here. Keela, if you would just maybe say that sentence again. Uh, describe. I think you were just describing the Institute. Okay. Um, a few years ago, I was asked to help develop a new institute in the medical school of the University of Colorado in Denver. And um, my interest in having lived in so many cultures for so many years and seen so many ways of healing and met so many healers was to organize a, a place where all of this information could be gathered and be made available to whoever wants to through a global database. And we have done that. So it's called the Institute for Indigenous and Traditional Medicine. And uh, we are presenting webinars with healers from cultures all over the world. And also um, one, and I've, uh, been doing the webinars with different uh, healers in different countries and different, um, let's say, disciplines. And one of my interests has always been in shamanism. Why and where and with whom does shamanism work? Which also brings us to the whole question of the use of placebos in Western medicine and, and they work. But one of the offshoots of this uh, new institute is that we're doing a movie on a man who lives in Santa Barbara, who is a Western-trained surgeon at Stanford, um, and who was also trained as a shaman in South Africa. And his uh, he works as the head of surgery at the Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital for many years, about 20 years. And he also works as a Sangoma, which is the African name for the shaman, um, in his backyard where he does something called throwing the bones in the shamanic way. And both are equally successful as healing agents. So um, we are thinking about making this a series on healing modes, modalities, and different cultures, and again, why they work. Now, belief systems is intrinsic to everything that works. And beginning to parse where does the belief system um, begin, how is it fed, how is it nourished, and can it be transferred from one culture to another? One of my uh, most delightful uh, anecdotes about uh, placebos, by the way, is that in a country like Brazil, which is a big soccer country, if a, and this is uh, based on fact, if a, if a patient goes to a Western doctor for whatever the ailment is, um, and the doctor prescribes some medication that looks like a football-shaped um, blue pill, the patient will not get better. However, if another patient with the same ailment goes to the same doctor and is prescribed with a yellow football-shaped pillow, pill, the patient will get better. And why? Because the color of the winning uniform of the soccer team is always yellow. So there is this talk about an, an intrinsic, uh, a subconscious relation between success and color. 
at that level. It, isn't that astonishing? So if we think about all of the things that we do in our lives on a daily or even nightly basis, and how our behavior is formed through these patterns that we unconsciously absorb in our lives, and how we can equally, given the opportunity and the intentionality to change our behavior in order to be healthier in whichever way that we wish. These are things that I'm so interested in bringing to the world, really, in this uh, global database and this institute. Listeners, I promised you that by the end of this interview with Gila, you would learn of her many roles, and I don't even know how to enumerate them, but um, I want to thank you for your time today, Gila, and I really want to remind people to buy the book, Archaeology of Metaphor, because as you've, you've gotten a taste of today, there are many themes for consideration within the book. And again, that is published by Skira 2022, edited by Donna Stein, and has an essay by um, Lawrence Kiermeyer and another essay by Carolyn Stewart. Um, again, Gila, thank you. And I hope that I can have you on the podcast for your next book about one of the many projects you mentioned today, a new project. So thank you again. And thank you so very much and your patience with me. Uh, and I'm really delighted to, to have been invited and to have a chance to talk with you, Kirsten, and look forward to, to the next one. All yeah. right. <laughs>